There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Our very special guest today is former NFL player, former congressman, and current NFL vice president of policy and rules, John Runyon. John, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Great having you today, John. John Runyon is a native of Michigan. He played college football at the University of Michigan. We won't hold that against him before being drafted by the Houston Oilers in 1996. He played 14 seasons in the NFL before retiring in 2009 and winning a seat in Congress in 2010, representing New Jersey's third district. After serving two terms, John decided not to seek a third term. In 2016, he returned to the NFL in his present position that many referred to as the league's enforcer. And John is also an advisory board member of Soldier Strong, the national nonprofit dedicated to connecting military veterans with revolutionary medical technology to help them take their next steps forward. So John, you grew up in Flint, Michigan in the 1970s and 80s. What was life like in Flint in those days? Well, it, it was right at, I know, you know, there was a time where you get into that, you know, 10-year-old kind of thing where you you have those memories, you know what I mean? And, you know, the it was economy, economy was struggling. I think my dad was actually laid off from General Motors for about two years and, you know, eventually ended up getting, getting back fully employed. But you kind of knew through the high school process and all that, you know, going into the late eighties, early nineties, you know, and sitting down with your guidance counselor and everything. And they said, you're not getting a job at the factory. Like your dad did, like your grandparent did grandparents did, you know, you're going to have to find a way out of here because there's not going to be a lot of going on. And they were quite blunt and quite honest about it. And, you know, that, that was one of the biggest, the biggest struggles is trying to figure out what the next steps were. And, you know, literally myself, you know, going, going through that process. And I was, you know, just kind of naturally drawn towards sports. So I kind of looked at sports as my avenue out. And what drew you to sports? Was it the, the teamwork, camaraderie? You know, I was kind of, I kind of fell into it. You know, I, I say this about the, the sport of football all the time. You fall into positions on the football field by a body type. Well, I wasn't necessarily a football player back in those days. I was a basketball player, but you know, I'm just like, when I get into junior high school, I'm like six, two, six, three. I'm the tall, the tall lanky kid that can't walk down the hallway, you know, cause you have no coordination and that <laughs> kind of stuff. And everybody's like, you know, do you play basketball? Do you play basketball? I'm like, I throw a ball at the hoop in the backyard. That's about it. Like, you know, I never had any, you know, youth, youth sports or anything like that. I think the only sport I ever played as a small kid was baseball when I was 13 and I hated it because <laughs> I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> so I was just trying to find that, trying to find that little niche because it was, I, I was around it. My parents were athletes. My mom, my mom competed in amateurly and fig, figure skating and tennis. And my dad was a, uh, you know, did the, uh, the fast track cycling, the indoor tracks, and he was also a speed skater too. So you kind of had that, you kind of had that stuff around you. So it was something that was there, but it wasn't necessarily pushed by my parents. It was just something was like, Hey, try this, try this, find out what you like. So even though you're six, two, six, three and lanky and couldn't walk down the hall, you had some genetics helping you through the process there. Yeah. And you had people kind of saying, well, you know, there's a good chance when you, when you look at my mother, who's six foot tall, my dad's 5'11", you know, even my grandfather on my mom's side was 6'8", and his, my, and, uh, his brother was seven foot tall. So there was some, there was some potential for, <laughs> there was some potential for an NBA career there. I just kind of tap, I just kind of capped out at like the, the 6869 mark where I was at when I left high school. Now I'm just over 6'7 after compressing my spine playing football for 14 years. <laughs> so you mentioned you weren't just playing football. You were a two time Michigan High School Athletic Association shot put champion, and you were recruited for the Michigan State basketball team, but you chose to play football in Michigan instead. What was behind that choice? You know, why did you choose football over basketball when you went to college? 
I think it was just more of a an opportunity to where I think, you know, in track and field and basketball, I had like kind of like capped out my potential. You know what I mean? You know, even in basketball, being in that that six eight six nine range, and I was a true post up, you know, post up back to the basket player. I'm like, that's not going to fly in Division One basketball at that height. You know, those guys are 6'10", 6'11", 7' foot plus. So I just didn't have that skill set. And I'd spent, you know, six years, you know, years in junior high school and in high school honing that skill set and never really had the face to the basket kind of stuff. I always had in the back of my mind, you know, if everything ever really fall apart, you know, maybe I could compete for the Olympics in track and field because there was that possibility there because that also is a very technical sport and very repetitive to, to, you know, to nail the, nail those techniques. And I know, I know in my high school career, I think I only nailed that technique like maybe four times ever over a four period, four year period, but you set records when you hit those throws. So it was, it was that time of stuff, but the football thing was, you know, taking the technical aspects of, of track and field, but also taking the athletic ability, the hand-eye coordination, the agility and all that, that it takes to play basketball, all that transfers right over to the football field because that stuff is playing and play out, whether you're playing offensive line, defensive line, tight end, all of that stuff has that ability. And when I went to the University of Michigan, they literally said, it's like, well, we're probably going to bring you as a tight end. We might try it offensive tackle and we'll see, you know, what, what, what level your speed and agility gets to whether we determine we're going to put you on the defensive side of the ball. So it was, it was still kind of an unknown. So it was a, it was a, it was an untapped potential there. I had a lot to learn. And, and the good thing is I only played football for two years in high school. So I didn't have a lot of those bad habits you tend to have. So when, you know, when you go up to a level, you know, going from the high school level up to division one football, and you have those mentors and those coaches around that are teaching you the best techniques, the best ways to get things done, you're not going to have to overcome all those bad things, uh, you know, my peers had because they've been playing football since they were six and seven years old. I mean, only playing two years of high school ball and then going on to certainly one of the you know, preeminent college football programs in history. That speaks volumes about your athletic ability. You know, people think athletes, especially talented multi-sport athletes like yourself, are just naturally gifted. We know, we know there's more to it than that. What sort of work ethic goes into to succeed at the college and professional level? Well, there, there is a huge level to being naturally gifted. And I think it's more of being around and exposing yourself to, you know, all those all that proprioception you always put your body into as you're playing, you know, rag ball out in the street or playing football in the street and all that kind of stuff. You have the, you have those gifts and they're, they're somewhat of gifts, but they're, they're a skill that you've acquired through play, if you will, you know, and it, you, it's transferable over to organized sports, but the one thing, and you see it at the professional level all the time, you see it in college, you can have a gifted guy that doesn't have the work ethic and when he gets to the professional level, he gets exposed because at some point you're either going to get hurt or you're going to hang around long enough to where you lose a half a step. And that's where that, that work ethic and those workarounds and being honest with yourself and trying to figure out ways to do the same thing because now you have limitations all come in it. And it is some guys are willing to do it and put the time in and try to figure out another way, you know, have conversations with other coaches, other players on other teams that have done it other ways. Some guys just want to do it raw athletic ability. And, you know, when they don't have the, the knowledge base of techniques and leverage and all of that kind of stuff, and they're just raw athletes, it's, it's when they're not on, when they're not a hundred percent, you can take advantage of them. And I think you see, you've got, you see it year in and year out in the, at the professional ranks. When you signed a six-year, $30 million contract in February 2000 with the Philadelphia Eagles, it made you the highest paid offensive lineman in NFL history at that time. Did people treat you differently? And what does that do for someone's ego? And how'd you keep your perspective? Um, it doesn't, you know, the, the saying is, you know, that, that, that kind of contract doesn't change you. It changes the people around you, you know, and it changes those asks and that kind of stuff. So you really have to take a close look on, you know, 
who's in your inner circle and what do they want from you? What are they trying to pull out of you? Cause you still have, you still have to play out that contract and you still have to do that kind of stuff. So you can't have that distraction. So that was one of, you know, that was one of my biggest things going into it is, is checking those people. And unfortunately you do have to shed some of those people along the way, you know, to, to not only make your life tolerable, but to, Know, have the longevity of a career that I ended up having. And, and you know, it was, there was some uncomfortable conversations. I, I cut some people out that have been around me for a very long time. Some of them are back in my life now that that is behind me, but some of them are. And, you know, that's the, un, that's the unfortunate thing about it. And I always say, you know, the biggest thing is falling back on those, you know, those Midwest morals that I came up with, you know, being humble, being honest, you know, showing up with your lunch pail and your hard hat and just going to work every day. And when you do that kind of stuff, you know, clubs, you know, employers tend to take care of you. And I, and I think that's really what happened. You know, when you go back and look at, you know, the situation I left, you know, with the Tennessee Titans before I came over to the uh, Philadelphia Eagles, I stuck my neck out there and took a one-year rider on a one-year contract and happened to go to the Super Bowl that year. And I became the only available free agent <laughs> at offensive line in the NFL, which to your to your opening remark there was why I was the highest offensive offensive pay, offensive paid offensive lineman in the history of the league for about only two weeks. And then Jonathan Ogden signed with the uh, <laughs> Baltimore Ravens two weeks later and trumped that one. But no, that's that's what that market is. And that's how that rolls. But, you know, it was just that it was just, you know, just put your head down and, and put the work in and things will take care of themselves. There's a 2008 poll of league players that said getting blocked by you and a screen pass was quote, one of the scariest things in the NFL. What made you so ferocious and so feared? It was just a, it was a mentality and it really, believe it or not, you know, in growing up in Michigan, I grew up in Flint only 52 miles away from Ann Arbor where the university of Michigan is so I've been around that program, you know, for my entire life. And, you know, back, those were back in the days of Bo Schembechler and all that kind of stuff. And there was a, there was a purpose to everything they did. And I, and I tell people this, when you sit in the, you'd sit in the full team meeting room at the University of Michigan, there were two sayings in the front. So the offense always sat on the right side of the room, defense always sat on the left side of the room, the defensive their, their tag word was pursuit, always being around the ball, rallying to the ball, team tackling. The offensive side was harassment. You're always in people's face, pushing people, poking people, getting in people's heads and trying to fluster them because I always looked at it this way. If I got somebody, you know, looking over their shoulder, worried, worried about whether I'm going to, you know, hit them in the back with a forearm or come flying over a pile or that kind of stuff. And then they're going to turn around and try to pick a fight with me. That guy's probably that 99% of the time, a defensive player is a better athlete than I am. And if I got him off his game, thinking him, he's going to try to fight me or he's worried about me. I just took that athletic ability edge. He has away from him just by something that I'm doing just out of sheer effort. And it was just something that was ingrained into me from that Michigan program you know, not even I was playing football as a little kid, but you saw it on national television every week. And when I got there, that was in the first thing. It's like, we're always around the pile. We're always in people's faces. And it was just something that became second nature to me that I carried on throughout my whole career. You achieved an amazing feat for an offensive lineman. And that is that you started 192 consecutive regular season games. That's 12 full seasons for our listeners and started all 21 playoff games. That's another season and a half. Your teams are in during that time. That was the second longest streak among active NFL players during the time you were playing. Linemen get banged up every single play, every single game. How did you achieve that miraculous feat? Well, a lot of it, there's two things you always remind people. There's a difference between being injured and being hurt. That's the one. And, you know, I've been given a little gift where I do have, you know, some people have it, some people don't, you know, a high pain threshold and you're willing to deal with it. But I always, I always go back to this. Um, no matter how 
you know, um, hurt you are on the football field. I mean, you're going to be hurt if you're playing 16 plus games a year. Um, you know, it, it, it is really about that second the ball is snapped. If you're legitimately focused on the task at hand, which is blocking your opponent and getting in, getting in the right position, you turn off that, that, that sensory thing in your brain that's saying, ouch, that hurts. Don't do that. Don't do that. And it's really just flipping that switch in your head to say, I'm out here to execute a technique or a block. I'm turning that off. Yes. As soon as that, as soon as you accomplish that, you're like, Oh wow, that hurt that kind of stuff. But it was just, it was some weird ability I had just to be able to shut that off. You know, in, you know, when the, when that ball was snapping and do that kind of stuff, not a lot of people have it. It was just a gift I had. Yeah. And, and then I always kind of laid over this too. I guess, especially after, you know, the, the contract we were just talking about, there's always a younger guy out there that's more athletic than you are, that makes half the amount of money that has more longevity than you do. But I always told coaches, I tell the media this all the time. If I never give him the ability to prove to the coaches that he can take my job on a Sunday afternoon, if I don't let him go out there and prove he can do it, he's never going to take it. And that, that was another, you know, just kind of, mental hurdle. I'm like, I'm not giving up snaps to let someone else prove they can do this kind of stuff. And it was, I tried to instill that in some of my teammates, some of them bought into it, but other ones, you know, not so much. So it was, it was just a thing. It was a philosophy that I went into that kind of, it would always squash that question you just asked, <laughs> you know, especially in the media, but it was just something that not a people really ever thought about, but, you know, I mean, you, you know, you've heard the old, uh, I think it originated back in the days of Jerry Glanville, you know, NFL stands for not for long. And, and that, I really, really took that to heart. You know, we talked about your storied NFL career. Is there any one game or play or one moment that is your, your one personal favorite highlight? You know, the unfortunate part about playing for as long as I did, there's a lot of those, the one that's stick in your head all the time or the ones you didn't get. <laughs> You know, I mean, even even in my career, you know, what we lose like five NFC championship games, you know, it's like when you go back and do the math, like I'm literally 12 wins away from winning like eight or nine Super Bowls. Like, it's, you know, when, when you lose that many championship games and I lost two Super Bowls in my career, too. So it it is a little bit of frustrating. But, you know, as you step away from it, you know, and you go back and you look at the the amount of the amount of people that have after even played in the Super Bowl, it's under 2000 people in, in 101 years, you know, that that's, that's incredible. That's an incredible feat in and of itself. So you know, to reflect on it now, you're an elite kind of group. I would, I would, I would have liked to have won one of them, but it just didn't happen because frankly, both times we went in there, we got outplayed that day, but that's why we play the game. So you had barely hung up your cleats in 2009 when you announced your candidacy for Congress. What made you decide to run for Congress? Was it something you'd always thought you wanted to do? Were you motivated by a particular issue or was there something else? Never really been a political creature. Um, I, to this day, still call the desire for politics a sickness and they should go get checked at the doctor for it. But there is a, obviously there is a natural ability for um citizens to be involved in politics because it is government, you know, for, for the people, by the people. And the more you're involved in it, the better. Um, you know, I think it really came from my involvement in the nonprofit sector and the charity work that I did and giving back and, you know, and, you know, and getting on corporate, you know, those nonprofit boards and seeing how much they actually do integrate, you know, integrate with, state and federal government and the asks that are there and to see how you can actually change people's lives through legislation, not only fundraising on the nonprofit side, but long-term effects of, you know, you know, NIH research or NIH dollars and all that kind of stuff. It, it's, it's tremendous. It, it was another way. And I really took it as just another step in community service is all it was. And that's really what it is. You're serving your community as their representative. And that's really how I took it. And I, I told people that on the campaign trail. I said, I am who I am. When I become one of them, if I don't catch myself, let me know because it's time to leave. 
So you defeated the incumbent and became only the fourth former NFL player to be elected to Congress after Jack Kemp from New York, Steve Largent from Oklahoma, and Heath Schuler of North Carolina. And in fact, I think your time in Congress overlapped with Schuler's. How are things different for you going from being an NFL All-Pro veteran to a freshman in Congress? You know, it was, an, it was another one of those things like we were just talking about that is a very small percentage of the population that has, gets the honor to actually serve. You know, I, you know, I think anybody, if they talk to their member of Congress, when they first get elected and you're standing out there and you're walking up to the Capitol and it's like, I can't believe this is where I work, you know, and when you look at the history of the country and all that kind of stuff, it is, it is, it is an honor. Um, when you, now when you try to go back, especially as an athlete, especially from a, I would say the ultimate team sport of football where it takes, you know, 11 guys on the field doing the same thing at the same time in the same direction. When you look at what it takes to put a team together and just being an offensive player to move the ball 10 yards to get a first down, just to have another shot at it and the strategy that goes in it and the planning that goes in it. And then you wonder like, why can't we apply this kind of, preparation and analysis and teamwork and organization and choreography to accomplish a legislative task. And that, that, that was the frustrating part about it because it, that's the, un, that's the unfortunate part when you're at the crossroads of politics and government. You know, government is a team sport. Politics is an individual mm-hmm. sport. And many people, I don't know if you, they want to reference this, so my op-ed, when I actually stepped away in Politico, I referenced that exact same kind of terminology in, my, in that um, op-ed. I said, are you in this to win a Super Bowl? Or are you in this to get elected to the Pro Bowl? And that's, that was my real big disconnect with the whole process because it is a, it, it's, it's bigger than... It's bigger than the Congress. It's bigger than the Republicans, the Democrats. It's about the country as a whole. And there are, you know, the, there are concessions you have to make. You're going to win. You're going to lose. It's, it's deal-making. And I always tell people, I goes, plot it all on a bell-shaped curve. It's just like the old high, you know, the high, you know, old high school grading scale. You're going to get so many A's and so many F's. And everyone else is in the middle. Well, that that hump in the middle is where policy and, and legislation gets passed. So it, it, it's not really, really that hard, but when you try to make it that simple, sometimes it, you just lose people with it. Yeah. And I've referenced that bell curve in previous shows where you've got, you know, the, the five or 10% on each side of those, those wings and it's the media that gives them the loudest voice. But to your point, 80% of the country is some sort of shade of gray somewhere in the middle. And it just comes to compromise, you know, and hopefully we'll get there at some point. Yeah, and it and it really comes off to. I mean, also, I always tell people too. I goes take a piece of legislation, and plot every point of a single piece of legislation on that bell shaped curve, and figure out where it falls. Because just to your point, the talking points are the stuff out on the end that are the partisan things that are going to flatten all the good stuff in the middle. Because when you take that those talking points out on the end and stretch them to the tilts, you don't have a majority in the middle to pass anything, and that's what happens with a lot of the stalemates we end up in, in the, in the legislative process. So campaigning and governing are both very hard jobs. And I've come to recognize that elected officials don't always like everything that comes with that job. There are some who like campaigning and don't care so much about, or aren't good at, as good as at their official duties. Then there are others who are all about policymaking and governing and view campaigning as a necessary evil that has to be done to hold office. Then of course, there are those people who are very good at both, but that's a much smaller subset. What did and didn't you like about each half of the job when it came to campaigning and policymaking? Um, campaigning, uh, campaigning for me um, was a, you know, put a, like you said, a necessary evil. It's like going to training camp in football. You got to go through a month of the brutalness to actually get to the fun of the games. But I always tell people this, and I, and I use this word purposely. I go, campaigning is half of your life not half of the job because yes, you you're given time away to be able to do that type of stuff, but it's, you're also now you're taking away from time with your family, time away from your kids sports and all that kind of stuff. So that's why I always insert the word life, not job in there 
the legislative process and some of the campaigning process, because they do overlap when you take the fundraising aspect away from the campaigning process. So the other part of campaigning and legislative process is really being a coach or an educator. It's educating people on what's going on and what the process is, what we need to get there, what points need to be inserted, what we're going to try to change. And when you actually educate people on those minute details and actually what the process is and they get a deeper understanding with it, they'll usually, they'll usually say, you're right on track. Keep plugging away. We'll let you know if we need some more help. We've been talking to former NFL player and former Congressman John Runyon. We'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hear, just be you, a lot these days. But who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on The Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. Or send an email to Chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. All right, listeners, we're back with our special guest, former NFL lineman former congressman, and current NFL vice president of policy and rules administration, John Runyon. John, before the break, we're talking about your time in Congress, and it seems like the highest priority for almost every second-term member of Congress or the Senate is to win a third term. Yet you announced in November 2013 that you wouldn't seek a third term. Why is that? There's actually one of the government shutdowns was one of the most frustrating things we had ever been been through because i think it was our second one um you know and we actually spent a week sitting around in a government shutdown not able to do much of anything at all and you know a week later and a week later ended up in the place there was a group i was i was part of the uh, tuesday group which is a moderate republican group 
and we would all meet regularly with the Blue Dogs, which were the moderate Democrats, and leadership on either side for either one of our parties would never listen to us. And where did they end up? Right where we told them they were going to end up, you know, two, two weeks out, one week out and all that kind of stuff. And then I remember um, it was right before the uh, August recess and we went away. Um, I jumped in my RV and went up to Maine with the family and met some friends up there. And I shut my phone off. I was frustrated as, as every American person was. I shut my phone off and then about three days in, I turned my phone back on and I just emails and voice messages start popping up. And my chief of the staff, chief of staff had left me an email and said, I know you're on vacation. Call me when you have a second. I have an interview request. And there was a, there was a, uh, there was a quote from um, Senator Cruz <laughs> that said, you know, unless we repeal whatever aspect of a, um, the Affordable Care Act, we're going to shut the government down again. I'm like, in whose right mind is President Obama going to resign or repeal to anything? You know, even if you can get it out of the House and the Senate, I goes, that makes absolutely no sense and goes right back to the process things we were talking about in the last segment. Like, that's not how the process works. And it just, to go out and throw that, you know, carrot out in front of the American people say this can happen. Like, no, it's probably never going to happen unless you change the executive, who's the executive leader of the country. So what were your biggest takeaways from your time in Congress? No, I mean, there's, there's a lot of good stuff. There's a lot of good people there. Um, There are things getting, a lot of things getting done. Even the people that you think are the villains on television are hugely pretty good people but it's there's a lot of theatrics um it's done for you know political posturing and all that kind of stuff it does resemble and i know football does this too it's a it's a it's a semi-scripted orchestrated show you know and the guys that execute it the best usually come out on top and that's that's the frustrating part for me because of it was just kind of how I am, how I'm wired. I, I was like, I want to get my hands dirty. I want to put my hands on somebody. I want to push on people. I want to do that kind of stuff. And the the dancing around it and posturing and maneuvering, like, no, like, this is the way forward. Let's do it. Let's get it over with and let's move on. Let's not talk about it for 20 years, which is a lot of the frustration I think the American people feel. And that's what I felt also. So to that point, what advice would you have for someone thinking about running for public office at any level, whether it's local, county, state, or federal? And are there parallels between the competitive world of sports and politics that you'd apply to running for office? Uh, they're very, very similar. If you can stomach the, <laughs> the dance that I was referring to either before, you know, the, the greatest part of it, you know, is is the educational part. And it's not a one-way street. You're educating people, but people are coming to you with issues, which is actually how I met you, Chris, Mm -hmm. because you came to me with an issue. And, you know, I learned, you you learn a lot from people and you, you try to help them develop policy around their, their specific issues that you can help them with. And that's, that is the part that I really, really, really enjoyed. You know, the, the frustrating part was, you know, being, and I know I've said this nine times, is like being overshadowed by the partisanship of it. And it's, you know, it's really, really frustrating. And I just couldn't, I couldn't stomach it anymore. I did it because I wanted to serve. And and I think most people appreciate that. You go there as as a citizen legislator to represent, and it's not supposed to be a lifetime job. And you come back because, Back in the day when our forefathers, you know, wrote up this constitution, you had to come back and operate your farm or operate your print shop or operate your tailor shop. You had to come back and then make sure you could still put food on the table. And back then too, it was a part-time job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so right. it's just, it's grown and it keeps growing. And, and I think it, you know, the more it grows, the more frustrating it gets for everybody. Well, I've heard a lot of folks say that politics is like a full contact sport. So it, uh, you know, the news makes it seem like that more and more every day. So we often rely on role models to help us find the right path in life. In your case, you've successfully navigated several paths. 
who were your role models in athletics and politics? And what was it about them that you looked up to when and you were inspired by? Um, my favorite athlete of all time, believe it or not, is Bo Jackson, <laughs> you know, and talk about someone that did it at a very high level in two different sports for his entire life. Never complained, kept his mouth shut, did all that, did all that kind of stuff. That's, that's kind of, kind of how I roll, you know, I roll and, you know, on politics, you know, I don't say I really got that involved in politics um, and really idolizing anybody in politics. But I think the biggest thing is in taking the best part of people like, you know, you look at Reagan and the kind of communicator he was and how personable he was and, you know, relatable he was, even though he was a politician and a movie star and all that kind of stuff, how down to earth he was and it. That kind of stuff really draws you to that kind of thing. And really, you know, the, the policy stuff, it's really, it really comes around team building and surrounding yourself with, with competent people that can advise you on, a, on the proper way forward. And that's really, you know, that's, that's mentors, that's, you know, idols. It's finding those little nuggets of people's like, that's a positive I want from that person. Yeah, he's a... He could be an idiot in five different things, but he's really good at that one. And let, let's grab that and mirror that and, and, and just being honest, because I always tell people, I told people on the campaign trail, I was like, I'm not a perfect human being. I, I strive to be, I make mistakes all the time. And by the way, I disagree with myself several times a day on opinions I had earlier in the day. So like <laughs> there, you have to be just very, you know, self-deprecating and all that kind of stuff, but being real and real honest with who you are and what your capabilities are. And, you know, there, there's not a lot of people out there. You can point to people like that, but there are pieces of them you can grab. So after Congress, you had sports talk radio and play by play. Viewers and listeners seeing here the polished, composed announcers and thinks it's a pretty cushy life. But from speaking with you the other day, that schedule is very demanding and hectic. What was your average week like during the football season when you're on that side of the business? Left side of the business, I, I, it got a little crazy. So obviously, I was I was the newbie anyway. So I got all the all the great ships, you know, Thanksgiving Day, Christmas Day, <laughs> New Year's Day, New Year's Eve, but. You know, regularly scheduled stuff like during the football season, I would do sports talk radio in the morning. So we went on air at 530. So I was up at, you know, four o'clock in the morning, heading over to Philly to go into that and then did a couple uh, two player shows that evening. So basically up for the better part of uh, what, 19, 20 hours by the end of that day was over. So. You know, Tuesday, Wednesday, I had a, a side business of business development consulting gig. So I'd do some networking events at night and that kind of stuff. Then Friday morning, I'd get up and do sports talk radio remotely from Atlantic City, which from here is about a 45 to 50 minute drive at 315 in the morning. Jump in the car and drive home. And at that time, my son was playing at the University of Michigan. So I picked the wife, picked the wife up at home, fly, drive to the airport, fly to Detroit, go there, get there Friday uh, late afternoon, um, you know, try to go have dinner with some friends or whatever, go to the game on Saturday. First thing Sunday morning before sun even came up, fly back to Philadelphia. Um, so if the Eagles were playing a home game, I would do the, um, the pregame show at the Eagle Stadium if they're on the road to go in the studio, go home at some point during that game, jump in the shower, put a suit on, and then go back to Philadelphia and do the sports wrap-up on the local, local Fox affiliate. And, you know, be in bed by midnight, but turn around and start the Monday morning back over and get up at, you know, five, you know 4.30 in the morning again and repeat the cycle. So it was... Uh, it was a little of sporadic hours all over the time. And then as an athlete, they said, always go to bed and wake up at the same time. And it's not possible <laughs> during my career. <laughs> so you're saying it's not cushy like it looks like on TV? No, I mean, but, but it's like anything else too. I think, you know, if I would have done it for another five, 10 years, 
but we know how that industry is shrinking also. But if I'd have done it, I probably would have had a regular, more full-time job where those hours wouldn't have been as hectic, but I still would have taken those pregame shows, those postgame shows, because I have an expertise there. Yeah, it's great to go on a sports talk show in the morning and talk some baseball and hockey, but my my passion is football. So the more I can talk about it, you know, the more it keeps me engaged in the game I love. Are there lessons that you picked up from your time in the NFL or in Congress or in the other roles that you'd share about how with the rest of us, you can do our jobs better and have better relationships? Yeah, I mean, I think number one is, um, it's a kind of a cliche, but there's a reason why we have two ears and one mouth, use them in that proportion. And it's really, you know, listening to people, taking what they have to say to heart, um, take everybody at their word, you know, and, you know, your word is your word. Don't break it, you know, and, then, you know, and just try to be, try to be upfront as honest with people, as many people as you can. So in May of 2016, the NFL announced that you had been hired as the league's vice president of the policy and rules administration. That means you're the league's rules enforcer when players or coaches get out of line. Now, I don't want to cast any aspersions, but a Sports Illustrated article in 2006 listed you as one of the NFL's dirtiest players. And that's something that you didn't deny. How does knowing that side of the game help you in your current job? Well, I think it's like, it's like anything else, though. Through, through those experiences and being in front of the person, being in front of the uh, person that, has, that had my current job back then, the line moved in my career of what was tolerable and what was legal and what wasn't. So as a, as an athlete, I knew where that line was and I knew the rules, how the rules changed in the, and that whole process. So it was just something I was, I'd always been around. Um, but I think also there's not, I don't think there's a big appetite for um, current players to dive into the rule book and understand the rule book to the intricacies that are in there and the, and the bad things that can happen and what you can be held accountable for. I used to tell people, you get into some of those training camp, um, into some of those training camp meetings in uh, July and August, and it's late at night, eight, nine o'clock at night, and you're sitting in a dark room watching film. And the only way to keep your eyes open is read something else because you've already seen that play nine times. And I'd literally be thumbing through the rule book trying to, you know, figure out stuff or just for me, it was point. I was like, well, that contradicts that sentence. Like <laughs> that doesn't make any sense and bringing that kind of stuff up. So that really, you know, that kind of falls in my policy world. So I've, I was literally going through a document this morning on our player policy, going through that type of stuff and checking that checking to make sure that there's not too much lawyer language in it and it can relate to players and all that kind of stuff. But it is, it was literally it was literally done out of experience, but I think also the stuff that a lot of people don't see, and we just went through this. So we have a, a competition committee, which actually address a lot of our playing rules and our player safety stuff. And that is a legislative process to the T. It's got subcommittees involved with it. It's got a major committee, and then it goes to the ownership for a vote at the end. And that vote is literally in two weeks from now. So any rule changes that are up, this committee will, you know, the, the, the uh, competition committee will go through it. We're actually going to present back what our findings are to two of the subcommittees later next week. And then once they approve it, it'll go back in front of ownership for a final vote. So there's the legislative process. There's the committee process. And, you, you know, and we're in the, the side of actually writing it all up where, a lot of times when you're on Capitol Hill, that's on the committee staff to do all that. But that's really what we are at the NFL is the committee staff getting all that stuff put in the proper legal and the proper football form so everybody can understand it. So there's obviously a very serious side of your current job. And to your point, that's keeping players as safe as possible, a high speed, high collision sport by enforcing those rules to protect them. What is the NFL doing and what more, if anything, can be done? to protect players from serious injuries and the effects of those injuries during their careers and certainly well after? Well, the biggest thing, and, um, you know, I, I currently work for a former teammate, teammate of mine who's Troy Vincent. He's the executive vice president of football operations. So I would say there's, there's about eight of us former players now at the league office. There's never been that many before. And you can see us walking down the hall because we're the ones limping and doing all that kind of stuff. <laughs> 
So we know what we expose our bodies to. So we've done a really good job at the NFL in the last probably decade or so of bringing in a lot of medical experts on the outside. And the Players Association, their union is also involved in this. So whether it's from, you know, better technology and helmets to tracking injury data, are there rules? You know, we had a great example. I don't know if you want to get too technical in football or not, but the blindside block used to be a big issue where you see those big de-cleaning blows. We haven't had a concussion on one of those in two years because of a rule change. Wow. So you talk about a very simplistic rule. Yeah, that used to be a huge part of the game. That was like a, you know, a, you know, a, a, a you know, a, a right of passing to do that to someone. But the risk that you put yourself and the person you're hitting at, and now like have that medical data around that say these are causing these type of injuries to eliminate that type of stuff. That is something we're constantly analyzing and debating. And the medical data shows every time the medical team comes with a with injury data says, here's a problem, and they put it in front of the competition committee and say, can we find a football solution to mitigate some of this risk or mitigate all of this risk without, you know, doing a complete overhaul of the game and destroying the game? When, when we're all in the room milling that kind of stuff over, we usually end up in a good result. Now it does take a year or two, you know, to get the players and the coaches to adjust the techniques and those instincts that they naturally have on the football field to reduce that type of stuff. But that's where my reminder as the disciplinarian comes in. It's like, hey, you crossed the line. We got to pull it back. This rule changed a year or two ago. And we're, we're eliminating this 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 type of action from the game because you're putting yourself and your opponents at risk all the time. You're not the only NFL player in your family. What's it like to see your son fall in your footsteps as an NFL lineman? It's a little nerve wracking. Um, I don't, <laughs> it's, it's kind of like, uh, it reminds me of being like a player and watching stuff develop watching um coaching tape and all that kind of stuff where you can see it before it happens and that's the in the intuition you try to take as a player and put it on the field and when you're watching them on the field you're like man i hope he sees it no one's pointing over there like someone's coming off the side <laughs> uh, that kind of stuff and that that is the frustrating part you know even to give them like a it's like Hey, you're dropping your outside hand. You need to shoot it. You need to shoot it. You can't get them that information while they're on the field. My daughter who plays college basketball, you might be able to yell that from the stands to be able to get it to her. But, you know, it, that is the, it's fun. It's, it's great. Um, but I try not to overburden him. I, I do, I do pull out the coaching hat a lot of times. and I do watch the film and say, Hey, did your position coach point this out and that out and that out? He goes, yeah, he got four of the six of them. I never thought about the other two, but I'll go tell him you brought it up. So it's just, I mean, it's another set of eyes. I let him do what he does. Cause I, I always told all of, especially my, my son who plays offensive line and goes every head coach and or offensive line coach has a different philosophy on what they want their guys to do in different ways to get there. And I said, if a coach is asking you to do something or a boss is asking you to do something and you do it their way, and they don't like it, it's their fault. When you do it your way and you mess it up, it's your fault. So I just always just keep that in mind. So I understand he wasn't always a lineman. He played tight end, safety, quarterback. He was even his high school team's kicker. There's an amazing story of adaptability behind his time as a kicker. Would you share that with us, please? Well, there was just, there was, there was just a little, there was a, when he was in junior high school, he actually, he was the punter for the junior high school team. And then one day when he went up for the, when he, when he got up to the high school level, he says, dad, they, he goes, it might've been the freshman, the freshman team in his high school. He goes, I'm going to try out for place kicker, but I've never done place kicking before. I'm like, well, did you go out for punter? He goes, no, nah, there's a kid that can manage that. I don't want to do that because I want to kick. And I'm like, all right. So I call up, I call up David Akers, who was their kicker at the Eagles at the time. I'm like, send me over your, you know, your, your coaching tapes and all that kind of stuff. And I grabbed every football possible. 
and you know watch watch the tapes i kind of intuitively know how to do it because david was a good friend of mine and i talk to him about it every now and then and took my two daughters and every football we had even if they were just kid footballs it was just something to kick because it's it's more like a golf swing if you can repeat the same motion every time and then replicate it on game day you'd be pretty good at it even though you do it differently differently than everyone else out there so that's really what it was and he didn't really kind of didn't really come to fruition until his senior year when a kicker had an injury and he had to step up two games into the season and ended up being all Philadelphia Catholic Catholicly placed kicker by default. And all he was really doing was kicking extra points, but I don't think he missed, but won the whole season. So it was just one of those, it was one of those things where he was confident he'd do it because he had done it before, but it was just, it just kind of fell in his lap. That's incredible. Thank you for sharing that with us. So any parting advice for our audience about how they can feel more empowered, persevere through adversity and achieve their goals? I mean, I, I always, I always leave people with this. I goes, you know, no matter what you do, find something you're passionate about and put everything you have behind it and you will be successful because that nothing's that nothing's ever easy, but that passion always overrides that, that struggle because you always come back. It's like, man, I'm not doing well. But this is what I love. This is what I love. And then you'll go back and you'll, you'll put that extra effort in it. And that's really what it's really all about is the passion. John Runyon, as always, it's great chatting with you. And thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And thank you to our audience for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details about upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek Public Figure. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with another leader from the world of business, politics, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.